the God who chose us and who saves us also keeps us. That's the great truth we have just heard and meditated upon and have sung lightly. Uh, welcome to all of you this morning. Praise God that we are back together again. What a blessing it is to be together as God's people, to not be watching the reading of the word, the preaching of the word, and doing uh, the, the music we were able to do, to not be just watching that on a screen, but to be together. What a blessing it is not to be preaching to that camera back there in the back of the room, but to actually be uh, feeding God's people visually, you know, as a, as a shepherd of a local church. Uh, it's a blessing to see your faces and to gather with you today and to gather around God's word. And as Walt prayed, to make much of God's name and God's word. And that's what we are here to do this morning as a local church. If you would go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 28. We are still in Romans and will be for quite a while. But today we do come to the end of chapter 1. So we are making progress. We're at the end of chapter 1 as we look at verses 28 to 32. So we are, at least in terms of chapters, 1 16th of the way through Romans. And uh, we find ourselves very much still in that first section. Paul, starting in verse 18, is describing the universal human predicament. As Paul describes it here, in line with the rest of the Bible, we are all sinners. And as sinners, we are under the just anger of Almighty God. We talked about how when we think about God's wrath, we have a tendency, I think in our culture especially, we have a tendency to think in terms of human wrath or human anger, just losing control, getting back at people, a capricious, unpredictable kind of human anger. That's where our minds tend to go. But when we came to verse 18, a little while ago, we saw that God's wrath, his anger is just. It is an expression of his holy revulsion against all that is contrary to his holy nature. This is one of the key passages in the Bible that we are in right now in Romans. One of the key passages for unpacking for us our predicament, our human condition. Sinners under God's wrath. And I think it's important that we make this point right now. It's very fitting for us to see that this is our most pressing problem. This is it. As individuals and as a human race, pandemics, injustices, divisions, lawlessness, all of these problems pale in comparison to this single problem that human beings face. It's not getting COVID-19 and dying in a hospital. It's hell. It's the wrath of Almighty God. That is the worst thing that could happen to us, and that is what the human race as a whole faces the greatest problem. This is a problem that needs a solution, but we are unable to solve it. The greatest problem needing the greatest solution and one in which we are absolutely impotent to bring any kind of solution. What's the answer? The gospel. That's the message of Paul in this letter to the Roman Christians, the gospel the good news that God has solved the problem for us. We can't solve the problem. When we come to God, all we bring are handfuls of unrighteousness. Not righteousness. Not pleasing things to God. But unpleasing, displeasing things to God. Imperfection. Debauchery. Lawlessness. Depravity. That's what we bring to God. And so the good news of the gospel is that God has solved it. God has solved 
the problem. The gospel, as I recently heard Mark Dever say in a podcast, uh, I had to pause it and rewind it. I wanted to just capture these words because I think they are fitting. He was talking about conversion and how we talk with people about salvation and individual responsibility in light of God's sovereignty. And he just said this off the cuff, but I liked it. He said, what God has done and what God enables us to do in our own hearts. Yes, we believe. Yes, we repent because of what God has done in the human heart, what God has done in history, and what God has done in the experience of every Christian. And the proclamation that we give to the world is that God does this in the lives of people. That is the solution to the problem. That is the good news that Paul is about in this epistle to the Romans. That is the good news that we are about as a local church, that every Christian ought to be about, is this gospel of Christ. Through Christ, problem solved. As we've been traveling this road that began in verse 18, so far we've seen several things, and I'll just list these. The judgment revealed, that was verse 18. Then the truth rejected, verse 19 and following, God replaced, and now we are looking at idolatry repaid. Part one was last week, and this week we will look at Part two, idolatry repaid, part two. We are answering the question, or Paul is answering the question, what is the outcome or consequence for not honoring or giving thanks to God? Verse 21, for worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Verse 25, what is the consequence for rejecting the truth and replacing God? That's what we are seeing at the end of Romans 1. This is important because we're not merely looking at sins that exist in the world for which God's wrath comes. That is true, but even deeper, we are looking at God's wrath itself being worked out in the fabric of human existence. The consequence for rejecting the truth and replacing God, idolatry repaid. And Paul answers that question in two parts. What is the outcome? What is the consequence? Paul answers that in two parts. Last week we saw, as I said, part one, simple answer, homosexuality. That's the first part of Paul's answer to how it is that his wrath is revealed in the present, in human experience, in human sinning, due to idolatry. Homosexuality. God, in judgment, gives human beings over to unnatural, dishonoring passions and deeds that exchange natural, good human sexuality for same-sex perversion. This is, as Paul says very clearly, the just penalty. This is a, a fitting in the justice of God, perfectly wise, perfectly just. This is the just due for the sin of idolatry. Because it mirrors. It mirrors our inversion the inversion where the, the creature has become God in our idolatry. We've inverted reality and we have dishonored God. And therefore God gives us over to dishonorable passions and dishonorable deeds so that we wear our shame in the body. That's Paul's argument last week as we looked at in the first part of his answer to the question, what are the consequences? So while the world all around us is celebrating LGBTQ Pride Month, by His grace, the Lord is putting before us, as a local church, the rock-solid truth of Romans 1. This is 
God's assessment of what our world right now celebrates. Today, we look at part two, the proliferation of sin throughout humankind. So last week was perversion, like a rifle shot. Paul singles out that one sin as a fitting mirror of what happens in human rejection and idolatry. It's a fitting mirror. He highlights that one as unique. But then Paul goes on in a more general way this week to describe the proliferation of sin, the extensive entanglement of sin in and among human beings. Last week the perversion, this week the proliferation all throughout the world of what we find described here at the end of Romans 1. So if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We will begin at verse 18 and read all the way through the end of chapter 1. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for his people. And it is the means that God uses to bring new birth to sinners like us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, constant language of cause and effect, cause and effect. Do you see that? For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And then we pick up now with our text for this morning. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Once again, gave them up. The third time we've seen this. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You wonder if Paul just rattled those off or if he stopped and thought as he wrote each of those. What, a, what an overwhelming avalanche of wickedness. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord and ask that he would give us gratitude this morning to him for what he's done for us through the gospel. And that God would convict us of remaining sin in our lives. We, none of us will be, although, well, contrary to what some have thought throughout church history, none of us will reach a state of perfection in this life. Up until our final breath, 
We will wrestle with principalities. We will fight against sin. And so we ask today that the Lord would uproot, that He would purge, that He would cleanse, that He would conform us more and more through His Word into the image of His beloved Son. Those of us who are His beloved children. So let's pray and ask for His grace through His Word. Father, we humbly bow before You this morning, Almighty God. We read of your mighty deeds, your wondrous works, all throughout Scripture. We see your mighty deeds and wondrous works around us. As the psalmist says in Psalm 19, that the heavens declare they are preaching always. Always proclaiming your majesty. Father, we give you praise this morning. We give you thanks. We thank you for this building. We thank you for these Bibles we hold. We thank you for our friends in the gospel, our brothers and sisters here with us now. Lord, we have a family. We belong to a family. Our elder brother, our Lord, our master, Christ, and those of us who will reign with him, who are united to him by faith, As brothers and sisters in Christ, we come together collectively to you as Father. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you sent your only Son into the world to save us. God, we just give you praise. We thank you for the gospel, and we get so much explicit gospel content in this epistle to the Romans. We saw the gospel repeatedly in Genesis And we saw your your covenant-making, covenant-keeping love, your steadfast love and faithfulness as Abraham's servant praised you for. We, We saw your promises all looking forward to the Christ, the offspring of Eve, the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah. But now in Romans, Lord, we see so explicit so in our face the glories and intricacies of the gospel of the crucified, risen, exalted Christ. And so, Father, we pray that this morning we would just exult in Christ, that we would treasure him freshly, that we would see the muck and nastiness of our sin, that we would quit justifying our sin, and that we would just fall on our faces in adoration that you have saved us from this nastiness, this debauchery and depravity. God, you are so merciful. We praise you that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are our heavenly Father. We come to you now as children, come to your table ready to feed upon your holy word. And we ask, God, that you would indeed feed each of us and that you would feed each of us in proportion to our specific needs, our specific experiences, our struggles, as only your Holy Spirit can do. So, Father, we pray for his work now among us that Christ would be magnified as the Holy Spirit takes the word and surgically works in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the title, as I said before for the sermon this morning, is Idolatry Repaid, part two. And we're going to consider three things this morning. So these will be the three points. Those of you writing these down and the kids who have those little sheets, uh, I would encourage you to write down these points. If nothing else, at least uh, write these down, get these in view. So here we go. The worthless mind, the wicked conduct, and the willful Rejection. The worthless mind, the wicked conduct, the willful rejection. As we look at part two, the end of Romans 1, as we look at the second part of Paul's description of the outcome or consequence of human rejection of God and replacement of God, this is what we find. So let's look first at the worthless mind. Let's revisit verse 28. If you'll look with me there again. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up 
to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The human mind. Back when we were looking at Genesis chapter 1, you may remember we came to that climactic set of verses in the first chapter, verses 26 to 28, where God tells us through his word that we are all as human beings made in God's image. We have mind. And why did we say there that that was one of the key ideas is because all we see up to that point in Genesis 1 is the mind of God seeing, declaring, working, dividing, shaping, making. Mind, designer, intelligence. We said that this idea of of mind is at the center of what it means to be made in the image of God. We are thinking creatures. We reason and relate. And we do all of our reasoning and our relating with moral judgment, with a sense of good and bad, right and wrong. And we saw this in Genesis 1 as, as God does things. He, what, he declares that they are good and good and good. And then at the end, very good. He, he assesses reality. He declares what reality is. He makes judgments on reality. We, like God, have minds. And with those minds, we assess. We are moral creatures. We are uniquely thinking and moral creatures made in the image of God, mind. But there's a problem. Our minds have been greatly affected by sin. Let me be more specific. Our minds have been greatly affected by what we've done with God and His revelation with our minds. As we have looked out on reality, what we have done with that knowledge, what we have done with that revelation has greatly affected our minds. Remember what we read back in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And listen to what he said, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish Hearts were darkened, futile in their thinking. So we've already seen this. And then again in verse 23, Paul said, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So we've already seen this this kind of cognitive, moral, heart and mind thinking kind of language. Futile thinking. Darkened hearts. Lies. So, futility, folly, and falsehood. That's what characterizes, as we've seen already so far, before we even get into verse 28 and following, futility, folly, and falsehood. That's what has filled the vacuum of not praising God, not giving Him thanks. Filled with these things, they have replaced truth and worship In the human mind. Where truth and worship ought to sit. Instead, futility, folly, and falsehood reign. And Paul picks this theme back up here in verse 28. So that's what we've already seen. But Paul takes that theme. He's he's dealt with the theme of homosexuality. He then goes back in verse 28 to kind of pick up the theme that he was discussing earlier with the mind. Because human beings, he says, did not see fit or approve or think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased, unfit, unapproved, worthless mind. It's a penalty for sin. It's important to note here that Paul uses a play on words between see fit and debased, which you cannot see here in English, but in the original language, he uses a play on words between these two. 
And I just want to give you a few quotes that I think help to capture what is going on here in the mind of Paul as he is describing this worthless mind in verse 28. So here's the first one from John Murray. He says this, The thought is that they did not deem God fit to have in their knowledge. They did not cherish the knowledge of God because they did not consider God worthy of such thought and attention. By the way, we keep using the word they because Paul is describing humanity in general, but we should really say we. We did not consider God worthy of such thought and attention. The infinite, eternal creator God who is and who is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love, and who in goodness made us not worthy. Eh, not worthy of our thought, our attention. John Murray goes on to say, the corresponding retribution is that God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to a mind that is rejected because deemed worthless, not fit for any activity worthy of approbation or esteem. Let me give you a second quote from Douglas Moo, another commentator on this passage. He says, people who have refused to acknowledge God end up, by the way, that's everybody, end up with minds that are disqualified from being able to understand and acknowledge the will of God. Do you see how, how Paul is relating the two ideas? God, we, we, we don't see fit to acknowledge God. We don't think God worthy of that. And so we are given over to an unfit, worthless mind. That's the logic. Finally, John MacArthur brings it out very succinctly. The mind that finds God worthless becomes worthless itself. The implication, I think, for us is that there is a vast, insurmountable contrast between the believer and the world. You know, it reminded me as I was preparing this week, it reminded me several years ago when we looked at the family. Ephesians chapter 5, first part of chapter 6. We talked about how one of the things we must recognize, one of the foundation stones for families, one of the things we must recognize as parents and as spouses is that the way we parent, the way we do family is not going to be in line with the rest of the world. So we should go ahead and, and deal with that mentally. We should go ahead and accept the fact that what we are doing on the home front is going to be weird, strange to the rest of the world. Why? Because of the great contrast that exists between the believer and the unbeliever. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 says, you must no longer walk, this is Paul writing to Christians in Ephesus, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, listen to what he says, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. And of course, we see the contrast, the great contrast between what was just described there and the Christian mind. How is the Christian mind described? Nothing or something no less glorious than what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. We have the mind of Christ. The mind of the unbeliever is darkened. We have the mind of he who is light. The one who himself is the light of the world. We've become sons of light. We are light in the world, shining in a dark place. We have the mind of Christ himself. What a contrast. What a contrast. Colossians chapter 3 verse 10. We have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. A very different mind we have from those in our lives who are unbelievers and we just need to understand that because it helps us stand firm when we face opposition. When we get text or emails from our unbelieving parents or brothers and sisters or though we go to family reunions and we see people or when our grown kids, those of 
of you who have grown children, when you get this kind of negative feedback about your life and how you're proceeding and moving forward, that we understand that there is a vast difference between the unbelieving mind and the Christian mind. We should not be surprised when we face opposition to our lifestyle, our practices, our ways of thinking, our views on various things. And we should understand where those views are coming from in those whom we love. Where does this thinking lead? Paul tells us at the end of the verse, to do what ought not to be done. This worthless thinking immediately results in wicked doing. Do you see the relationship there? Verse 28, Paul says, God has given us over because we did not think God worthy of acknowledgement. God has given us over to a worthless mind, but it doesn't stop there. This worthless mind results in all kinds of wicked deeds. And it does remind us, before we move on, that action proceeds from thinking. That the way we think greatly affects what we do. And so some of us, as we're fighting sin in our lives, we are focused on the the behaviors, or we're working with our children and correcting them. We're focused on the specific, uh, the leaves on the tree, if you will. What about the roots? The roots are the thoughts, the thinking patterns. That's why Paul says repeatedly in his epistles that we need to concentrate on our minds, and particularly in Philippians 4, as he talks about worry, anxiety, and as he talks about thinking on good things. It's because that's where the battle is fought, in our minds, not merely in our behavior. Change the way we are seeing the world from God's perspective, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, setting our mind on things above, setting our mind on the things of the Spirit. This is where it begins, always where it begins, reformation in our lives, here in our minds. So we see First, the worthless mind. Secondly, we come to the wicked conduct. The avalanche of verses 29 to 31. Let's read those again, as painful as it is. Verse 29, verses 29 to 31. The wicked conduct. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless. You got to breathe. Ruthless. Here we have what biblical scholars call a vice list. And these were actually pretty common in the ancient world. They were common among Ironically, Greek and Roman pagan philosophers and among religious writers of various kinds. These these lists of bad deeds, these lists of vices. And this one is particularly unique because it is the longest one we have in the New Testament. It it is really, it, it does take our breath away. I mean, you cannot go through the whole thing without taking a breath, literally. It is an avalanche, and although it is not comprehensive, it is a grand indictment of human depravity. There is much talk right now about how to fix our society, much talk about what policies, laws are needed, what sorts of movements need to flourish, much talk about how to fix things. We have to ask the question, why is it broken in the first place? How we answer that question is very important. Because the world answers that question very differently, as we've just seen. The thinking's off. Why is the world broken? How can you fix anything when you don't know why it's even broken? 
Paul tells us clearly here why it is broken. This list that he gives, interestingly, is social in nature. It catalogs various sins that show up in human relationships between human beings, all the way from the family unit to rulers and their people. This this goes all the way from the family to nations. These are the sorts of things that are showing up in the interrelationships of human beings. For the Christian, as we come to a list like this, before we look at anything in particular, as we come to this, this list, I think it is both refreshing and convicting. Why is it refreshing? Why in the world would something like this be in any way refreshing? It is refreshing because we can't read this as Christians without thinking, this is what I've been saved from. What a blessing. We don't read as Christians, we don't read these vice lists and just go flat like a pancake. They don't squish us. There's a sense in which we read these things, just like our confession of sin in our service earlier. We read these things, and rather than being squished like a pancake, we are lifted up in praise to God as we read the most horrific of sins. Characterizes the world and once characterized us. We also were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We once too were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. So it's refreshing. Wow, God has saved me from that. What a picture. But secondly, we do have to recognize that it is also convicting. Yes, it does not squish us flat like a pancake, but it is nonetheless piercing in the heart. It is convicting. We are cut to the heart as we read a list like this. I don't know about you, but as I read this list, I see many of my sins reflected. It highlights our old sinful nature that we still carry around with us, that we were saved from. Let me give you a few verses to kind of illustrate this tension that we have within us as we carry around this old nature. First, Galatians 5, 16. Paul gives the language of walking by the Spirit so that we will not gratify the desires of of the flesh. Romans 8:13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so, if we don't walk by the spirit, we will gratify the desires of the flesh, this old unsaved nature that we had in Adam before Christ saved us. And that will be put away with when we're glorified one day. That we're being sanctified from daily. And then in Romans 8, Paul describes it as we must daily be putting to death. We can't go on vacation. We cannot go on vacation from spiritual growth, from sanctification, from executing the flesh, the deeds of the body. And then finally, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh flesh which wage war against your soul. There is a war raging in every Christian's heart. There's not a war in the unbeliever's heart. They're given over. There is a war in the Christian's heart as the flesh and the spirit are battling it out within us. Some of us are just oblivious to that, just coasting, thinking that there is no fight. There is no need to do these things, these these verbs, walk, put to death, abstain. We're just coasting along in the Christian life. There's no vigilance, no intensity of force in fighting sin. 
thinking it's just going to come natural to us. We're in Jesus now. The Spirit's just going to do it. It's not the way any of the New Testament writers talk. None of them talk that way about sanctification and sin. So whatever your theology is, if you're talking about sin is different from the New Testament writers, your theology needs to change. We must fight. So let's take a moment to just dig into, as we consider how this weighs on us as Christians, let's now consider the specifics of this vice list. And I think the first thing that we have to note about this list is the language of all and filled with. They were filled with all manner of. They are full of. I mean, this is incredible language. It's not just these things are practiced, colon, list them out. It's filled with all manner of these things. And it's not just a few things. It's all filled and then a massive list. This is the image of human society being drunk with sin. Drunk. Intoxicated to the full. A cup spilling over the rim. The image that came to my mind is we got this pool recently for the kids that we put for our two children that we put in the backyard and when they get in it, they of course want to fill it all the way to the top as I did when I was a kid. Fill it all the way to the brim, to the very top and then of course they get in it and just start spilling over the sides. That's our world. Filled to the brim with sin. Most commentators have pointed out that this list does not really call for categorization. It's not as though you can very neatly go through this list and say, well, here, these go here, and these go here, and these can be grouped here. It's as though Paul really is just hurling many forms of sin that afflict humanity. I mean, he's on a roll. But there is, I think, nonetheless, somewhat of a grouping here based on the grammar and sentence structure of this passage. And so let me just briefly help you understand kind of maybe what we could, what we could see here as groupings. The first would be the first four. The first four words appear to be broad, comprehensive terms. All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, or, or just greed is really the idea. Excessive desire for things at the expense of others. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, or greed, and malice, or wickedness. These are general ideas that just sort of encapsulate the whole thing. And we've seen this before, as Paul said, that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Unrighteousness there, and even before, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, that's meant to sort of be comprehensive in nature. And I think that's what's going on here with these first four words. They're just catching everything. But then in the second round, we get a set of five. And you can't see this set. You have to look at it grammatically. But this, there's another set of five. And they're listed as this. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. And it may be that Paul has put envy at the front of this list in order to show that all the others mentioned flow from it. Maybe, maybe not. But it does make sense. We talked about how in Ecclesiastes says that all the work of men, all the striving is because of envy of his neighbor. Wow. And how convicting that was. We look at someone else, we see what they have, and we hate them for it, don't we? Well, we don't like to say that. As I said before, envy is one of the most disgusting sins in the world. It's something that we never give voice to. We have it going on, but we don't vocalize it. We, we would never even want to think we have that in us. It's so nasty. It's disgusting. But it's there. And these are the sorts of things, it seems, that flow out of it. Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Because we want what other people have. And we hate them because they have it and we don't. Oh, how true to life that is. The last set includes 12 vices. Harmful speech about others, gossips and slanderers. 
enmity with God, haters of God, haters of God. People shaking their fist at God. Don't we see this in our old nature sometimes when things don't go our way? Just grumpy toward God. Grumpy about our circumstance. God, why are you letting this happen to me? Why is this unfolding the way it is? We talked about this last night in our family worship with Joseph. When Joseph went off to slavery in Egypt, oh man, he could have grumbled. My life's ruined. What's happened to me? And then, and then, when, he's, uh, then when Potiphar's wife lies about him, my life's over. This is terrible. God, where are you? And we don't know what Joseph was thinking, but from every indication, Joseph trusted the Lord in holiness of life by God's grace. We get no indication that Joseph is grumbling. Enmity with God. Pride, insolent, haughty, boastful. And the last six words appear to go to the depths of depravity. Inventors of evil. Reminds me of the Tower of Babel. If they continue on, nothing they purpose to do will be impossible to them. All the evil that they will invent, the human race gathered together for the sake of their own glory and defiance of God, there's no limit to what they'll invent and do. By grace and judgment, God disperses the nations. Not content with the same old evil. That's boring stuff. The same old evil's boring. I want new evil. This is human. This is human at the core. Disobedient to parents. Foolish. Faithless or breaking agreements. Breaking covenant. Faithless. uh, Being faithless in that sense. Heartless. Heartless here. Lacking natural affections. In other words, Parents not loving their own children, children not loving their own parents. And in the, in the Roman world, it was very common. Infanticide was very common when someone did not have the baby that they wanted. So they had a little girl instead of a little boy. You know, those of us in this church, we have a lot of little girls running around. We have them, we, we hold them tight to our souls, to our chest. We love them. We love them, love our sons and our daughters. In that day, they were taking those newborn babies and just putting them out somewhere in the wilderness to potentially be eaten by wild animals. Horrific. Natural affections. Set aside. It's innate for parents to love their children. And in this worthless mind with these wicked deeds, even that is thrown aside. Ruthless is where it ends. Ruthless without mercy. Without mercy. I've said a lot already, but I want to draw attention just to a couple of things before I move on to our final point. Just a couple of these that I want to really highlight. And the first of those is strife. I want you to notice that strife is very much a part of this list. This word means strife, discord, or contention. Engagement in rivalry, especially with reference to positions taken in a matter. Oh, man. We need to just stop and think for a moment. I grew up in a church that had this thing called business meetings. Maybe. You know what that is. You know what that looks like. The business meeting. Why do we think about business meetings in a negative way? Well, because that's where everybody stops being the church. Right? So we're the church in Christness happening on Sunday morning and in gospel community groups and any other service we have. But at business meetings, the clubs come off. We're not the church anymore. This is business. I've got my position. You've got your position. And if your position is wrong or against my position, I'm going to gather a little faction of people. We're going to duke it out. We're going to battle it out. And this is where, this is a strife meeting. That's not always the case. I don't want to be, I don't want to be cynical. But unfortunately, practically, it happens in that way, I think, a lot. And I'm not just 
drawing from my own experience, but also those of others. Strife. And I just want to highlight this before we move on. There is a great danger right now as Christians that we face during a time like this. 2020. 2020, what a year. There is great danger that we as a local church would have strife as we take different positions on matters. The matter of social justice, whatever kind of nuances are involved in that larger category, as we take a position on the matter, or the matter of COVID-19, the pandemic, serious or not serious, just another flu or a really serious ordeal. Should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? Why aren't we having gospel community groups yet? These are the sorts of questions that are swirling around inevitably in our hearts and minds. And so there is the temptation for strife, division, here versus these people. I've, I've even heard this language and in fact even had it in my own heart. The language of the cautious and the casual. Unfortunately, cautious gets turned into a whole host of other words, pejorative words. The cautious are now dot, 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 fill in the blank. Cowards. And then over on the other side, we have the casual, foolish. This sort of language, we're, we're, we're taking positions, moving ourselves apart. Now, I don't think we're doing that in any large way in the church, but I think it's something right now we just need to face as we look at this text and say to ourselves, is this godly for us to do that? Regardless of the, the strifey nature of the, of the issue, no. This is a, a mark of our old person. This is a mark of the pre-saved Lonnie. This is a mark of the pre-saved, put your name there, it's sandwiched right in the middle of all of this other wickedness. We need to consider that before we start drawing lines, camping out on our positions, and characterizing and judging our brothers and sisters in Christ. A second one that I want us to focus on is, before we move on, is disobedient to parents. Why would I highlight this one? I mean, there's so much here. Why would I highlight this one? Well, I think it's important just to notice that this is not a small matter. This is presented in the Bible in, in terms of, of gravity. This is not presented in the Bible in the way that our culture tends to think about. Children sort of expressing themselves and finding themselves and all of this other garbage language that we find in our culture about how a parent ought to think about the heart and minds of their children. What we need to recognize is that in the Bible, disobedience to parents is at the very height of sin and the very depth of depravity. We find it as part of the list Paul gives in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 2. But understand this, that in the last days, whatever you make of the last days, but the point is, Paul's drawing attention to it as a particularly heinous thing. He says, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy. Now, if our culture set the standard, we would not have this in this list. We might understand why the rest of them are there, but not that one. Just reminds us of the great responsibility we have as parents to shepherd the hearts of our children and not to overlook their disobedience and their defiance because of where that's headed and that their defiance against us is ultimately defiance against their maker. So God hands people over to a mind that results in these various forms of evil conduct and that brings us to our final point this morning, the final verse of chapter 1 of Romans verse 32, the willful rejection. The willful rejection. Look at verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So here we are. Here we are as a human race caught in the muck of every form of sin. 
bringing destruction, corruption to ourselves, our families, and our societies. Worthless minds giving rise to wicked deeds. And to this, I mean, you could stop there, Paul. You could just stop there. That's a lot. It's a lot so far. But that's not where Paul stops. To this, Paul adds two more ghastly aspects of our condition. First, we do all these things. Listen to this. This is Paul's point. We do all these nasty things while inwardly knowing that such deeds are evil and even more deserving of death. We we do them while knowing that. While knowing they are an affront to God and his glory, we do all of, things, all of these things while knowing that because they are an affront to God's glory, we deserve death. And we do them anyway. This penalty of death takes us back to Genesis 2. And of course, later in Romans 6, Paul will say, for the wages of sin is death. We do it anyway. Man. Shaking our fist at God. And what Paul is saying is that there is an innate knowledge in all human beings that our sin deserves God's condemnation. In every single one of us. And yet we do it anyway. I said last week that the sin of homosexuality, those who practice that sin and who uh, support that, they know in their hearts that it is shameful that it is dishonorable, but they do everything they can to suppress that and cover it up. But as Paul says here, they know. And the same is true for all sin. Numbers 15, 30, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. This idea of doing something high-handedly is just shaking your, your, your hands at God, doing it right in God's face, defiant. We are not ignorant sinners. We are rebellious sinners. We are defiant sinners. Second, Not only do we do these things, but we give approval and consent to those who practice them. This speaks volumes to all those politicians who endorse sin in order to get votes. They may not practice the sins themselves, but they're quick to change their position if they can get some more votes. They'll stand before God for that. Or all of those corporate executives who support sin in order to sell their products. They'll stand before God for that. But it speaks to all of us, not just those key public figures. It speaks to all of us in our politically correct age. Not just doing the wicked deeds, but vocally, publicly approving of them or approving of them with our shh. Silence. Proverbs 2.14 speaks of those who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. That's our world. What an indictment. What an indictment. Have you felt the gravity of this text this morning? This mirror? What... An indictment, but what a Savior we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to think, not just merely that Jesus saved us from this. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me from this. But to think that he bore this in his own body on the tree. That he took All of this on himself. Every one of these sins we've committed, people of God. And Christ took them. He absorbed them. And he absorbed the wrath of God for them in our place. It's the glory of the cross. How in the world can we celebrate the cross without seeing these sins? 
How in the world can we exalt and magnify Christ Jesus without seeing all the depravity that he bore in our place? He bore all such, such sins upon the cross to liberate us from sin forever. In Christ, we are freed from a worthless mind, wicked conduct, and willful rejection and rebellion against our maker. Praise God for the gospel that Paul preaches in this epistle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today that we have been able to meditate upon and study. God, we ask that your spirit would bring it to our remembrance over the next week before we come back together that it would be fruitful as discussed in gospel community groups. Lord, we pray that we would have that sense of delight and celebration in knowing that we've been forgiven of such sins. We've been set free from the power of such sins, although we fight them daily. Lord, help us also to bear under the conviction that your Holy Spirit graciously brings to our hearts as he purges these things from us, Lord. How we see ourselves in this list, Lord, I know I do. Thank you, Father, for not casting us aside. We think about Joseph's brothers. We think even about Abraham. You didn't cast him aside because of your electing grace and your steadfast love. And you will hold us fast and we will praise you for it forever. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.